Chapter 21 of Thomas Wingfold, Curate, by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 21 A Thunderbolt Sometimes a thunderbolt, as men call it, will shoot from a clear sky, and sometimes into the midst of a peaceful family or a yet quieter individuality without warning of gathered storm above or slightest tremble of earthquake beneath, will fall a terrible fact, and from the moment everything is changed. That family or that life is no more what it was, probably never more can be what it was. Better it ought to be, worse it may be, which depends upon itself. But its spiritual weather is altered. The air is thick with cloud and cannot weep itself clear. There may come a gorgeous sunset, though. It were a truism for one who believes in God to say that such catastrophes, so rending, so frightful, never come but where they are needed. The power of life is not content that they who live in and by him should live poorly and contemptibly. If the presence of low thoughts which he repudiates yet makes a man miserable, how must it be with him? If they who live and move and have their being in him are mean and repulsive or alienated through self-sufficiency and slowness of heart, I cannot report much progress in Helen during the months of winter and spring. But if one wakes at last, wakes at all, who shall dare cast the stone at him that he ought to have awakened sooner? What man who is awake will dare to say that he roused himself the first moment it became possible to him? The main and plain and worst, perhaps only, condemnation is that when people do wake, they do not get up. At the same time, however, I can hardly doubt that Helen was keeping the law of a progress slow as the growth of an iron tree. Nothing had ever yet troubled her. She had never been in love, could hardly be said to be in love now. She went regularly to church, and I believe said her prayers night and morning. Yet, felt no indignation at the doctrines and theories propounded by George Bascombe. She regarded them as George's ideas, and never cared to ask whether they were true or not, at the same time that they were becoming to her by degrees as like truth as falsehood can ever be. For to the untruthful mind the false can seem the truth. Meantime, she was not even capable of giving him the credit he deserved, in that, holding the opinions he held, he yet advocated a life spent for the community, without, as I presume, deriving much inspiration thereto from what he himself would represent as the ground of all conscientious action, the consideration, namely, of its reaction upon its originator. Still farther was it from entering the field of her vision that possibly some of the good which distinguished George's unbelief from that of his brother Ephemera of the last century was owing to the deeper working of that leaven which he denounced as the poisonous root whence sprung all the evil diseases that gnawed at the heart of society. 
One night she sat late, making her aunt a cap. The one sign of originality in her was the character of her millinery, of which kind of creation she was fond, displaying therein both invention as to form and perception as to effect, combined with lightness and deftness of execution. She was desirous of completing it before the next morning, which was that of her aunt's birthday. They had had friends to dine with them who had stayed rather late, and it was now getting towards one o'clock. But Helen was not easily tired, and was not given to abandoning what she had undertaken, so she sat working away and thinking not of George Bascombe, but of one whom she loved better, far better, her brother Leopold. But she was thinking of him not quite so comfortably as usual. Certain anxieties she had ground for concerning him had grown stronger, for the time since she heard from him had grown very long. All at once her work ceased. Her hands were arrested. Her posture grew rigid. She was listening. Had she heard a noise outside her window? My reader may remember that it opened on a balcony, which was at the same time the roof of a veranda that went along the back of the house, and had a stair at one end to the garden. Helen was not easily frightened, and had stopped her needle only that she might listen the better. She heard nothing. Of course it was but a fancy. Her hands went on again with their work, but that was really very like a tap at the window. And now her heart did beat a little faster, if not with fear, then with something very like it, in which perhaps some foreboding was mingled. But she was not a woman to lay down her arms upon the inroad of a vague terror. She quietly rose, and, saying to herself it must be one of the pigeons that haunted the balcony, laid her work on the table, and went to the window. As she drew one of the curtains a little aside to peep, the tap was plainly and hurriedly, though softly, repeated, and at once she swept it back. There was the dim shadow of a man's head upon the blind, cast there by an old, withered moon low in the west. Perhaps it was a something in the shape of the shadow that made her pull up the blind so hurriedly, and yet with something of the awe with which we take the face-cloth from the face. Yes, there was a face, frightful, not as that of a corpse, but as that of a spectre from whose soul the scars of his mortal end have never passed away. Helen did not scream. Her throat seemed to close and her heart to cease, but her eyes continued movelessly fixed on the face even after she knew it was the face of her brother, and the eyes of the face kept staring back into hers through the glass with such a look of concentrated eagerness that they seemed no more organs of vision but caves of hunger, nor was there a movement of the lips toward speech. The two gazed at each other for a moment of rigid silence. The glass that separated them might have been the veil that divides those who call themselves the living from those whom they call the dead. It was but a moment by the clock, though to the after-consciousness it seemed space immeasurable. She came to herself, and slowly, noiselessly, though with tremulous hand, undid the sash and opened the window. 
Nothing divided them now, yet he stood as before, staring into her face. Presently his lips began to move, but no words came from them. In Helen, horror had already roused the instinct of secrecy. She put out her two hands, took his face between them, and said in a hurried whisper, calling him by the pet name she had given him when a child, Come in, Poldy, and tell me all about it. Her voice seemed to wake him. Slowly, with the movements of one half-paralyzed, he shoved and dragged himself over the window-sill, dropped himself on the floor inside, and lay there, looking up in her face like a hunted animal that hoped he had found a refuge but doubted. Seeing him so exhausted, she turned from him to go and get some brandy, but a low cry of agony drew her back. His head was raised from the floor, and his hands were stretched out, while his face entreated her as plainly as if he had spoken, not to leave him. She knelt and would have kissed him, but he turned his face from her with an expression which seemed of disgust. Poldy, she said, I must go and get you something. Don't be afraid. They are all sound asleep. The grasp with which he had clutched her dress relaxed, and his hand fell by his side. She rose at once and went creeping through the slumber-house, light and noiseless as a shadow, but with a heart that seemed not her own lying hard in her bosom. As she went she had to struggle both to rouse and to compose herself, for she could not think. An age seemed to have passed since she had heard the clock strike twelve. One thing was clear. Her brother had been doing something wrong and dreading discovery, had fled to her. The moment this conviction made itself plain to her, she drew herself up with the great deep breath of a vow, as strong as it was silent and undefined, that he should not have come to her in vain. Silent-footed as a beast of prey, silent-handed as a thief, life in her movements, her eye flashing with the new-kindled instinct of motherhood to the orphan of her father, it was as if her soul had been suddenly raised to a white heat which rendered her body elastic and responsive. End of chapter 21 Read by John Sherman, Winfield, Illinois